John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and the text will be on the screen as I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. I'm Jason Anderson. I'm the pastoral resident here. As the kids are heading out to children's church or children's something, uh, there's just a few things we want to highlight. So the first thing is, I'm going to forget this, I'm going to try to remember it, but uh, I think uh, Josiah and me were asked to kind of head up decorating. Thank you. So, after church, I think there's a binder somewhere, and uh, if you help Josiah and me decorate, it might look more beautiful than if two men tried it on our own. Just saying. So, that's a, a strong invitation. We are not binding anyone's conscience here as much as we might wish to. So that's number one, uh, but uh, that I'm going to try to announce that at the end of the service too, just a reminder, heads up, like, okay, just, uh, I'm not even, sh- I don't, I don't know any, I don't know where anything is, so I'm sure it's somewhere, just dig in closets and find it and enjoy uh, hanging the holly and the ivy wreath and whatever else the song says. The second thing that we want to announce that's more uh, long-term thinking in the future is that in the next three weeks, we have something called Beta Adult Sunday School, I think is what it's called. Um, so that's just, we're trying it out, but we really want to encourage people to join us in the chapel in the back, right to the right of here. And next week, Brian will be teaching, and Josiah's going to help, and I'm going to help. And me and Amy are going to talk about something. And we're specifically, we're, we're thinking on what it looks like to read the Bible with people and personally. So we want to think about healthy and wise devotions, uh, whether it's by yourself, whether it's with a family, or whether it's with just another person. There's lots of ways to think about it, and that's why having three different people talk about it, I think it's really going to be helpful. So I want to encourage all of you to come at 9 o'clock sharp and join us in that chapel and just have a good time as we think through... uh, yeah, 
uh, what it looks like to have devotions together. There will be children's stuff going on, so if you have kids, I think if you just walk in the door and release them, they will figure out what to do. <laughs> that's what we do. I'm sure my wife would say something different. So maybe that's not what we do, but that might be what I feel like we do. Um, so those are the two announcements. Uh, so this morning's sermon is a little bit of a hybrid sermon. Uh, Josiah mentioned it's on John 1. It, it's really on Genesis and John 1. Uh, so it's, it's Brian and I were talking, and he was saying, oh, you should do, maybe you could do the intro sermon. Uh, and so because he really wants to focus on some of the themes in the first few chapters, giving me the intro sermon means that he can sort of think through more deeply some of those things. So he landed on me doing the intro sermon on the day after Thanksgiving, which is helpful for him too, I'm sure. Uh, so we're doing this morning, number one, intro to Genesis, and number two, we're also doing this bit of a pre-Advent sermon. So Josiah mentioned next week is Advent, and that's why we're decorating. We decorate for Advent. Uh, it, Brian last week called it a tailgating sermon. I'm not sure I've ever tailgated, but that's what people do somewhere. Um, I just, you know, watched football on the TV. So I'm sure it's not going to live up to everyone's expectations, but here's hoping, I do hope that this sermon's helpful as we think through the whole book of Genesis. Like, how, how in the world is it put together? And as we think about how it's put together, it helps us to understand, well, what is it, why is it written? What is the benefit for us? And so this hopefully is a foundation for all of us as we go into a, a longer series on the book of Genesis. And hopefully also we get to touch on preparing ourselves for Advent. So thinking about Advent, I want to start out by reminding us what Advent is. What is the typical thing we say as a church we're doing during Advent? There's this book called the Worship Source Book. I think it's helpful in what it says. So I'm just going to read to you what it says. The season of Advent is a season of waiting. It's designed to cultivate our awareness of God's actions, past, present, and future, in Advent, we hear the prophecies of the Messiah's coming as addressed to us. People who are waiting for the second coming. In Advent, we heighten our anticipation for the ultimate fulfillment of all Old Testament promises. When the wolf will lie down with the lamb, for instance. When death will be swallowed up, for instance. And every tear will be wiped away. In this way, Advent highlights for us the larger story of God's redemptive plan. A deliberate tension must be built into our practice of the Advent season. Christ came in the past, yet all things have not, not all things have reached their completion. While we remember Israel's waiting and hoping, and we give thanks for Christ's birth, we also anticipate his second coming at the end of time. So it's a season of waiting. It's a season of remembering how God has fulfilled his promises and also anticipating the future and final fulfillment of all his promises. And as we spend these next few weeks in waiting, we're going to be reminded of something from Genesis that's crucial for 
us as we wait. God said in Genesis 1, let there be light. With his very word, when he spoke, light came into being. But turning to the book of John, we remember that God is light and in him there's no darkness. We're reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. In the beginning, God was the Word. In the beginning, God was light and life. We remember the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. We are reminded and are appointed to think on the very nature of God displayed through creation, displayed through His act of creating light and life. But Genesis also reminds us of the fact that we walk around in darkness, in the shadow of death. As I was working on the sermon this week, I ran across an old hymn that I don't even remember searching for. I think I was searching for some words. Just type words into Google and it tells you the meaning of life. Maybe. I don't know. It said, All the world in darkness lay, sin's dark night had banished day. This is the reality of the world. Without Christ, the world was in darkness. In sin, the day is banished. So even though we walked out this morning in the brightness of the snow and the sunlight reflecting off of that snow, we are walking in the night apart from the light of Christ. And a preacher I randomly read this week, he said, I mean, is there anybody who wasn't born blind? As we think of blindness, we remember that to be blind is to be walking around in darkness. So the season of Advent then is, a, is, a, is, rem, is remembering, first of all, that Christ is the light and we are in darkness and Christ, it is only Him who can make our eyes see. As He made light out of darkness, He can make our eyes see the light. It is in Christ that sin's dark night disappears. This is the theme of the sermon then. So as we consider them, these things, let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we are so grateful that you have opened our eyes to see, even just dimly, in a dim mirror, the light of Christ. And we ask that you would continue to day by day open our eyes and our minds with the light of Christ with the life of the Son and the life-giving power of your Spirit, we pray that you would be at work in each of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, our aim is really big picture which means in a lot of ways we're not going to have a lot of nitty-gritty. Like, what am I going to do today? But hopefully... It encourages us and reminds us of the glory of the work of Christ in our life. So before we consider that big picture work of Christ, we also want to consider the big picture of Genesis. What's Genesis all about? And then second, we want to prepare our minds and hearts for Advent. 
So we're going to look first then at just how Genesis is put together. And then second, we'll look through the lens of, of Genesis. We'll look at the, light, the ideas of darkness and then light. So first, Genesis is a huge book. If I don't know how long it is compared to all the other books of the Bible, but it is 50 chapters long. So if you're a kid, if you're counting chapters, it's one of the longest when you're in elementary school or middle school, maybe you learned how to write. And you did not learn how to write like the author Genesis, but you thought, five-paragraph essay. Now, of course, I never learned this until like college. I had to take remedial English. I don't know about any of you, but, you know, they talk to you and then you think, well, what does that mean even? But anyways, five-paragraph essay, you have the introduction, you have the body paragraphs, and then you have the conclusion, right? There's an organization to how you write. The same sort of thing happens for every good piece of thing written. So not the stuff that you wrote in middle school, but the Bible. Every, every book of the Bible has a plan. And as we consider the plan of the book of Genesis, for instance, it helps us to understand what he's doing and as we understand what he's doing, it helps us to understand what it means for us. So, the two things I want to help you see this morning for the book of Genesis is the literary structure. So, like the five-paragraph essay, that's a literary structure. For Genesis, there's something different. And then the second is the plot line. Like, how is the drama unfold in Genesis? And the great thing is that, is that they're pretty simple. So, the first one... The literary structure, Genesis, is divided into, first there's this introduction, chapter 1, 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. And then the rest of the book is organized between 10 what we call generations. In the NIV, you'll see the word account, or once it says written account. So the idea is that each of these generations has this familial descent. The interesting thing is the first generation is, the, these are the generations of the heaven and earth. So this is the familial descent of the beginning of all creation. And then it goes on to different families. And then families. And then every generation. Sometimes it says, well, here's one brother, Esau, and then here's another brother, Jacob. Now the book of Matthew, just for fun, actually plays a riff on this. The book of Matthew begins with a riff on these are the generations. It says this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In other words, the, the Gospel of Matthew, he, he's actually intentionally saying this is a new Genesis. And what does this new Genesis begin in? Jesus. Now, in the book of Genesis, each of these, I said, is a heading for a family line. You can enjoy finding all ten of them. And I think that this is in, actually how Moses put it together. He's walking in the desert or however he's doing, he's thinking through, how am I going to organize this book about the beginning of the world to what? What is he intending to do? Instruct the people of Israel. What is all this beginning? What is all this? Where do we come from? What's our identity as a people? And Moses says, here, this is how I'm going to tell that story. Now, it's, of course, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's not just man's inspiration, but it's, it's through the craftiness also of Moses. And he planned it out through these generations. 
So the heavens and earth, Adam, Noah, Shem, Terah, Ishmael, and so on. Now, if you look at that, there's some short stories. Some of them are like half a chapter long, it seems. And some are super long, maybe five, ten chapters long, the story of this generation. Okay, so now we all know, and maybe you already knew this, there's ten generations in Genesis. That doesn't get us very far. We have to ask, what are they there for? Why is it organized this way? Why did Moses think this was the good thing, good way of communicating to Israel this truth? What does this generation to generation thing accomplish in Moses' mind? Now we, can't full, we can't get into his mind, but we can at least understand the story of Genesis as it's written down for us. It's essential for us to understand the argument. And this is where the plot comes into being. You know the plot line that you learned in, in school? Starts with the beginning of the story and then there's this rising action and somewhere in there there's this conflict and then the characters have to figure out and then there's this climax with the conflict and then, and then there's the resolution somehow. There's a plot line in the book of Genesis. It begins like this. God, the giver of life, created the world and humanity. He, he put humanity in this garden of wonderful things. They could, they could take whatever they wanted. They could worship and serve in this temple garden forever. If only they obeyed him. If only they did not eat of the fruit of one tree. Now, it's not a magical tree tree of knowledge of good and evil. We'll get there someday. It was a thing forbidden. Would Adam and Eve choose to worship and serve the Lord, or would they choose their own desires? Would they choose to do what the Lord had them to do and fulfill what they were created for, or would they do what is ultimately going to lead to death? Instead of choosing that worship, they chose, we maybe all know, the, they took that fruit and they chose death. They chose sin. They, they were cast into the darkness of sin and death. Now that is the main plot conflict. God created and gave out of His, His glorious goodness. He shone the light in the darkness and humanity basked in that light and yet they chose darkness instead. But God was gracious to them. In the shadow of death, He preached the hope of life. He promised that the devil, the wicked serpent, would one day have his head crushed. Now, it's not just getting crushed by any old grandma. Supposedly, in your, maybe in your family you have stories of your grandma on the farm in South Dakota cutting heads off snakes with a hoe. I feel like I do in my family. I think, I think that's a normal familial thing, right? Amy asked me, it's like, what does that even mean? I thought that was a normal thing. No, it's not just by any old grandma. We had tough cookies in my family. It was by the offspring of the woman. And this offspring of the woman would have his heel crushed. Now, when you read that, it almost sounds like an equal opportunity crushing. Well, the the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, they crush each other's heels and, and then the head. So it's kind of like everyone gets hurt. 
But think about what happens. What's the story? The serpent's head gets crushed. When you crush somebody's head, they're dead. When you crush somebody's heel, as many of us Vikings fans know, you can go to TCO, you know, get your orthopedic surgeon and they'll fix your heel. Give it a year and maybe you'll come back. Right? Heel injuries are not the same as head injuries. Although there's violence on both sides, one is to the, to the, leads to destruction and one leads to the healing of the nations. The offspring of the woman will win. In each generation then, and this is where the, I, the story, the word generation, see we see that, in each generation, <coughs> excuse me, men and women will be tempted to follow the seed of the serpent. They will be tempted to choose again to eat the, follow the footsteps of their father Adam and Eve. They will not only be tempted, but they will choose that life. And yet, someday down that line, God is going to preserve that family line to the point that he will have this son crush the serpent and bring life. He will deliver Adam and Eve's family from the curse of sin and death. And really, he will create a new family. There will be a new genesis, a new creation. Now, throughout the rest of the book of Genesis then, and this is what we're going to do as we go through this series, we're going to search the generations for this champion, for this winner, for this deliverer. And in every chapter, we wonder, is this the time God intends to fix the problem of Genesis 3? Is this, is this the time when God's going to crush the head of that serpent? And the answer is, Every time, no. And early on, we hear this in, in chapter 5 of Genesis, for instance. You hear the story of the generations marching on. Adam. After Adam, Seth. After Seth, Enosh. After Enosh, Kenan. After Kenan, Enosh. After Kenan, Mahalalel, etc. But each generation, what do they do? And they died. Not every genealogy says, and they died. You don't go necessarily to genealogies to hear, and he died. No, Moses is intentionally putting, and he died in chapter 5 to remind us that the curse of sin and death still is in charge. None of these men will save us. None of these familial lines will save us. When we continue to read through the book of Genesis, we get glimmers of hope, though. Okay, there's this increasing corruption, but then you see that Noah walks with God. And then you see God delivering humanity from itself at the Tower of Babel. And then we see God calling a family line of uh, Abraham you say, is God going to fulfill his promises through this man, Abraham? He called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He calls him out of Haran to this promised land. And we, we see the answer still is no. 
Abraham's choices clearly show us his impatience. And you just have to look at the Hagar plan and say, yeah, no, that's not the guy. And then we look at his children. We look at Isaac, say no. At the end of his life, what do we see but that he is blind? Blinded by the darkness of sin. His body succumbs to death. Then we come to Jacob and Jacob's family and we say, is this the, is this the line? In this son of Abraham. No, we see a man just hobbled by his trickery. In every generation, both we think in the line of Abraham and outside of the line of Abraham, throughout the whole book of Genesis, there is no light. There is only darkness. There is only sin. There is only death. Now, of course, the Israelites who are hearing this story for the first time, at least the way Moses composed it, of course, they knew that. Abraham was long gone. They had been delivered out of Egypt long before Joseph long after Joseph died. But I think there's some consolation here. If we were to reflect on our own family backgrounds, we could only describe it as we're just a mess. I feel like that was, at one point, that was some, I repeated it so much at our old church that that was kind of like our church theme. We're just a mess. But it's true. But the second thing about that is, were it not for God's grace, I would have remained in my own darkness. I would have followed after my own genealogy, which talking to family this weekend, it's like, well, where did all that mess in my one family side come from? Well, maybe it came from the fact that my great-grandma's mom died in the Spanish flu, and then she just got sent off to this relative and that relative. Right? Were it not for God's grace, you know, I would have been walking around in sin and death. Same with you. We have to remember that glorious grace of God that has called us out of that darkness into his light. We imagine that we should be the ones holding it together. And I don't know about you, as a younger person, I think this is especially true. You come out of college, I'm holding it all together. I got it. And then you have siblings that don't get along all the time. Somehow your mom and dad are not perfect. Somehow your friends leave you. Maybe you feel alone in this new world that you have to feel like you have to establish for yourselves. You feel like, I have to hold myself all together. No, this is not the, what Christ has called us to. That is us walking in darkness. Like I already said, I mean, is there, isn't, is, is there anybody who wasn't born blind? We are all born blind. And Genesis, the book of Genesis, preaches this loud and clear. And then maybe one final thematic thread that's woven through the book in the story of Abraham that's important for us is the promise in chapter 12, verse 3. As we think through this Advent season and we're thinking of, well, God is going to fulfill His promises. We see God promising not just the crushing of the serpent, but the promise of this 
seed of Abraham, bringing blessing to all the families of the earth. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham, God says. Then this, this promise is pivotal throughout the whole book of Genesis, and this promise is pivotal throughout the whole life of Israel all the way until Christ. What does Christ do? One of the ways we can ask, answer that question is, He is a bringing a blessing to all the families of the earth, fulfilling that promise to Abraham. And what is that blessing? Forgiveness of sins. What is that blessing? Shining the light into the, our dark eyes and making us see. I read, this is a really funny quote. What would the world do without Christ's saliva? I mean, if you know that, I love it. It's just so vivid. But the, the, the point is, what did Christ do with one of the blind men in, in the Gospels? He puts saliva on his eyes and the man sees. This is the story of Christ giving sight to each of us through the Gospel through forgiveness of sins. It brings clarity, this promise of Abraham brings clarity to that crushing of the head of the serpent. Through Abraham's offspring, God will bring blessing. Through Christ, he will bring sight to the blind. So we should have this eye throughout the whole book of Genesis, asking in every generation, is God bringing blessing to all the families in this generation, there's a tension every generation. In every generation, we just see messes. We see brokenness. We see death. We see murder. Genesis is actually a very dark book. It's, like, it's dark like the movie Fargo. I watched this movie a long time ago. It's not really one we like that much. But it's so dark, just murder and covering up murder. The only difference is that there's light at the end of the darkness in the story of, of the Bible, in the story of Genesis. If we were to read the book of Genesis backwards, we would see that light a little more clearly. Now, the light isn't any one man or woman. Instead, it's God if we're just looking at all the people in Genesis, we would see only brokenness. But if we read with an eye to see what God is doing, we would start to see the big picture. At the end of the book, in the fi final climactic episode, where the sons of Jacob, they had sold their brother into slavery. He had been a slave in Egypt, and then eventually he comes to be a ruler alongside Pharaoh. And Joseph, this brother who had been sold into slavery, had the opportunity to get back at his brothers. He had the opportunity to bring justice. And his brothers are shaken in their boots and they come to him and say, Joseph, we love you, you're the best. And he says, don't, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended harm for me. You, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. You see, in spite of all this darkness, 
we see that it is God who has been at work the whole time. Bringing light, even in the story of Joseph, which there are terrible things in the story of Joseph. You see, even in the book of Genesis, even in the murder of a whole town, the brothers of Joseph, uh, the, the brothers of Joseph, or somewhere back there, they all decide to murder a whole town because they did something mean to their sister. Right? Just terrible. Even when Adam and Eve taste the first fruit, we still see God's light shining in the darkness. See, God is not surprised by their failures. God is not surprised by our failures. Instead, He is God. He is, that means He's powerful enough to accomplish good through even the worst situations. If, that, if that's the, the light of the book of Genesis, if that's the resolution of the book of Genesis, I, I think it is. <coughs> I think that's, that's a truth that we can cling to. Because so many of us, we wake up in the morning and there's difficulties with extended family, with our spouse, with our kids, with our neighbors, with our coworkers. And yet, for those who have called on Christ, we're not simply looking at ourselves as our saviors. Instead, we are reminded every day that it is God who is at work through even the worst of our situations. In every generation, God is the one saving. He is the one preserving. He is intent to save, and He has been in ages past, and He's still doing it today in your life and in my life. And this is a story not just of Genesis, but of the whole of the Bible. I think it could be easy for us, and I think we from time to time do this, it could be easy for us to be cynical as we read the Bible. But it's only because we're reading it with a human-centered approach. Think, well, I, I, I think I can put myself together and this person should be put together too. We could ask, why can't David keep it all together? Why does he have to murder somebody and, you know, take Bathsheba? Or... What in, what in the world just happened with God's judges? He called these judges and then they're just a mess. But don't you see, you're, if you ask these questions, one of the things we're doing is we're, we're imagining that man can save himself. We're imagining that it is humans who rule over creation as God. We're imagining that there is no effect of sin and death on us. But in all honesty, none of those people did, and neither do we. Not, none of us can actually, of ourselves, live with all our stuff together. And that's what makes God God. He is God because He rules all things by the word of his power. He speaks and eternity filled with his voice re-echoes the praise of his Lord, says one hymn writer. He speaks and seeds become flowers and trees and galaxies. If his voice is that powerful, don't you think it's powerful enough to work through 
what terrible things happen on this earth because of the spread of sin and death. No matter the darkness, God will keep His word. God will fulfill His promises. And as we walk in this Advent season, not this week, we're almost Adventing. We're almost Adventing, is that what we say? Right? We, as we're looking forward, we're looking forward and remi- reminded of how God has kept His promises, but also how He is continuing to keep His promises. His word thunders forth and will do what it has set out to accomplish. What this means is that the generations aren't just marching on aimlessly. If it's simply us all figuring out our own stuff, then that just means the whole world is marching off aimlessly this way, that way, and the other way. No. In the Old Testament, we see God is at work even through the terrible stuff to bring about a Savior. And even now, He is working in the world to establish His church, to preserve a people for His own pleasure. When Christ came, He shone as a light in the darkness. He opened the eyes of the blind and the dead sinners. And He still does that today. After the darkness, after all the waiting, He, true God of true God, light of light, Jesus Christ, right, the Son, He took on humanity. That is the light shining in the darkness. Can you imagine what the spiritual sight would be of Christ the baby and Christ walking in the darkness? It's like the infrared glasses. You put them on and everything is dark. You look over the world to Israel and you see the brightness of Christ shining forth. A light is shown in the darkness. And what does this call us to? Well, this calls us, recalls us to put our faith in Christ the light. It recalls us to turn from the darkness through repentance. It calls us to live with hope. You know, it's one thing when it's cloudy every day of of the week and in the month of November, you can feel depressed. You can feel like there's no hope. And the march of winter is coming. And yet this Advent season, the best thing about Advent, I, there's 20 million best things about Advent, but the best thing about Advent is that it reminds us of the hope that we can have, even though the sun is going to go down at 4 p.m. someday. And as we live in this faith and hope, we're called to love others, those who revile us, speak all kinds of evil against us, For Christ's sake, as we walk through the darkness of this world and we endure the onslaught of the evil one and the even just the effects of other people's messes, we remember that God is at work to accomplish good and he can do that even through the evil that you or I or our neighbor does. Because what is he doing? He's seeking to redeem He is seeking to save. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would 
Give us a vision that you would help us to see the glory of Christ's coming. We pray that you would give us faith and hope and love as we walk in this dark world. We thank you for the light of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.